Today on Something You Should Know, why does it seem that great ideas come to you in the shower? There's actually a good explanation. Then the important difference between pleasure and happiness. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. And Las Vegas, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley have very specifically confused and conflated these two terms, pleasure and happiness, so that you don't know the difference. Also, does rinsing fruit and veggies for a few seconds really get rid of pesticides and bacteria? I'll have the answer. And why would a pretty successful guy write an important book about failure? Well, I just, uh, I have a lot of experience with losing, is the honest answer. I've done a few things that I think people would point to as success, and, and I'm very proud of that, but that's all been built on a foundation of just banging my head against the wall. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to episode 218 of the Something You Should Know podcast. I know because I can tell from the audience figures we get online uh, as to the number of listeners that we have a lot of new listeners in the last couple of weeks which is why I mentioned that we're on episode number 218. So if you like this podcast, uh, you've got 217 other episodes to listen to, uh, if you like. And you can easily find those episodes either on our website, which is somethingyoushouldknow.net, or wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else. First up today, you know, it's almost become cliche that, you know, great ideas come to you in the shower. But I'm sure it's happened to you that you've been in the shower with this warm water beating down on you and bam, a great idea pops into your head. But why? Why does this happen so often? It's because the shower creates the perfect conditions for a creative flash, coaxing out your, your inner genius. Research shows that you're more likely to have a creative epiphany when you're doing something monotonous like fishing or exercising or showering. Since these routines don't require much thought, you flip into autopilot, which frees up your unconscious mind to work on something else. Your mind goes wandering, and it leaves your brain to quietly play a no-holes-barred game of free association, basically. Shelley Carson at Harvard University found that highly creative people share one amazing trait. They're easily distracted. And that's the beauty of a warm shower. It distracts you, it makes you defocus, and it lets your brain roam free and crash into some great idea. And that is something you should know. It's sometimes easy to get the concept of pleasure confused with happiness. But pleasure and happiness are not the same thing. And in fact, if you are constantly seeking pleasure, it's very hard to find happiness. Pleasure is temporary. In fact, often it's just momentary. But in that moment, it sure feels good, which causes us to seek out more of it. It's the nature of drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors. And all of this presents an opportunity that businesses that peddle pleasure can exploit. That's the message from Dr. Robert Lustig. 
Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist from the University of California, San Francisco, and he's author of the book, The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Our Brains. Now, normally I'm not a big conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I don't believe that businesses deliberately, intentionally, and conspiratorially are trying to take over your mind. But I do think some of what Dr. Lustig has discovered is very important to hear. And so here he is. Welcome, Dr. Lustig. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. So if I have your message correct, what you're saying is that businesses in the quest for bigger profits are peddling these pleasurable substances and these pleasurable behaviors in hopes that we'll come back and buy more and more and more of them. And we do that at the expense of our own health and well-being. So what, what, first of all, what kind of substances are you talking about? So for substances, it could be cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, which is the one I write most about because that's the cheapest of thrills. And for behaviors, it could be shopping, gambling, social media, video gaming, pornography. Okay, not substances, but behaviors. Every single one of those has an aholic after it in the extreme. And the reason is because every single one of those causes the release in the brain of a very specific neurochemical in a very specific area of the brain. The chemical is dopamine. The area is the reward center or the nucleus accumbens. And this is what we call pleasure. Uh, the problem is that every one of those in the extreme lead to addiction. And the industries that uh, peddle each of these have figured out how best to target us in order to basically make money. And in the process, we have become fat, sick, miserable, stupid, broke, addicted, depressed, and most decidedly unhappy. <laughs> well, wow. Well, that's depressing to hear. Well, unfortunately, uh, uh, the data are there to back it up. And, and you say it's not a conspiracy, but you think it's a plot. It's deliberate to some extent. But what, why is it deliberate? Why do you think that companies, businesses, illegal or legal, are doing this rather than say, well, people seek pleasure because that's what human beings do. We seek pleasure. And so we will go out and seek it. And yes, sometimes it's in the extreme. And yes, sometimes businesses can profit from that. But whether the businesses profit or not, people will seek pleasure. Well, in fact, pleasure used to be relatively rare. Each of those substances and behaviors were actually pretty hard to come by, you know, several decades ago. Uh, that changed really with the pot still in 1700s. And that ended up being the first time that a public health measure to control a substance was necessary, uh, the Gin Act of 1736. Then in the 1800s with the Industrial Revolution, sugar became extraordinarily plentiful and we ended up starting to see changes in weight gain, type 2 diabetes, etc. 
but it is only, you know, sort of hit uh, fever pitch and, uh, you know, breaking the bank now. In the interim, of course, we had nicotine uh, and uh, the whole tobacco issue. The point is that each of the companies that sold each of these products figured out the best way to do that. And then the other companies said, hey, we're losing market share. We ought to copy what these other companies are doing. And so everybody ended up doing it anyway. But they didn't do it because they got on the phone and said, let's see how we can pull the wool over the American public's eyes. Let's see how we can actually contribute to the destruction of the United States. They didn't do that. <clears throat> All they did was say, let's see how we can figure out how to make as much money as the next guy. Because human beings will fall victim to this stuff. Absolutely. Because we love pleasure. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that tells your brain this feels good, I want more. Now, there's a second neurotransmitter in your brain called serotonin. Serotonin is made from a different amino acid in our diet. It is not part of the reward center. It is part of the contentment pathway. And what serotonin tells your brain is, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. And contentment is the baseline level of happiness. So as you say, we've got pleasure and we've got happiness, two seemingly similar things, but they are very different. And I know you can spell out in, in seven ways how they're different. So, so go ahead. Number one, pleasure is short-term, happiness is long-term. Two, pleasure is visceral, you feel it in your body. Happiness is ethereal, you feel it above the neck. Three, pleasure is taking, Happiness is giving. Four, pleasure is achieved alone. Happiness is usually achieved in social groups. Five, pleasure is achievable with substances. Happiness is not achievable with substances. Six, the extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors, and I've just named them, will all in the extreme lead to addiction. Conversely, there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And seven, Pleasure is dopamine, happiness is serotonin. Now, you are probably sitting there, Mike, and your listeners are sitting there saying, like, why do we care? Who cares? They both feel good. Actually, it means the difference is huge, and it actually is the difference between societies functioning and societies not functioning. Because dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So whenever dopamine is released, it excites the next neuron. So dopamine binds to its receptor, the dopamine receptor, specifically the D2 receptor, and causes the next neuron in the chain to fire. Now, neurons like to be stimulated. That's why they have receptors. But neurons like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. They like to be stimulated, and then the stimulus go away. Chronic overstimulation of any neuron will lead to neuronal cell death. So in human terms, what does this mean? means, well, you get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, and the receptors go down. And then you need a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you need a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons actually do start to die, that's called addiction. Now, serotonin, this happiness neurotransmitter, 
It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It puts the next neuron to rest. It doesn't stimulate it. It actually quiets it. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. And Las Vegas, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Washington, D.C., have very specifically confused and conflated these two terms, pleasure and happiness, on purpose, so that you don't know the difference. So they can, quote, sell you happiness. I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Lustig. He's author of the book, The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Our Brains. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. As a listener to something you should know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dr. Lustig, here, as I listen to you, here is... I don't know if it's the flaw in the argument or or just a a crack in the argument that I hear you make, is you say that corporations are peddling pleasure by selling these products and these behaviors that hurt our brains and hurt our bodies and cause addiction, except that in most people, it's not true. There are plenty of people who can have an occasional drink, not get addicted to alcohol, and still find happiness in life. There are plenty of people 
who can eat sugar, have dessert, and eat the occasional candy bar, not become addicted to sugar, and still find happiness in life. And if you look at nicotine and sugar, two of the substances you talk about, uh, nicotine is going in one direction and sugar is going in the other. It's become much less socially acceptable to smoke, so fewer and fewer people smoke despite the addictive nature of nicotine. And sugar, which has been around forever, and in the 1950s, people could have gone to the supermarket and bought tons of sugar and eaten it, but didn't. Sugar consumption has gone way up since then. Well, except that it was in five-pound bags and you had to put it in something, as opposed to the, it being added to the food already. So it's a little disingenuous to say it's quite the same. It's not quite the same. And as to your comment about the fact that smoking has now become culturally unacceptable, that is true. The question is, where did that come from? What it came from was public education and litigation against the food uh, tobacco industry, basically calling them out in their lie. So 30 years, there have been four, count them, four cultural tectonic shifts in America in the last 30 years. And I'll name them for you. Bicycle helmets and seatbelts, smoking in public places, drunk driving, condoms in bathrooms. 30 years ago, every single one of those was anathema. If a legislator had brought that up in a state house or in Congress, they'd have gotten laughed out of uh, town, never gotten reelected. Okay, today, they're all facts of life. How come? Because we have laws, okay? Because Mothers Against Drunk Driving changed the dynamic, they changed the playing field, and now every single uh, state has a click it or ticket law. So that's not a personal issue, that's a societal issue. Condoms and bathrooms, same thing. Smoking in public places, okay? Boreali v. Axelrod was a New York State Supreme Court case that said, you have a liberty interest to smoke. Well, the legislature thought, gee, you know, we've got to change the laws. And so what they did was they started banning smoking in restaurants, in bars, in all sorts of public atria and places. And now the the hospitals, and now the public gets it. And so now when you see somebody smoking on the street, You feel sorry for them. Ultimately, 30 years from now, when you see somebody drinking a Coke on the street, you will feel sorry for them. But it's not going to happen until we change the norms. And the only way to change the norms is through public education and ultimately through policy change. Well, I hope not. I I, I hope people don't feel sorry for somebody having a Coke or, or eating a candy bar because they could enjoy the momentary pleasure of that. Because again, not everybody is a potential addict. Why should they have their Coke and their candy bars taken away from them? Because some people can't handle it. But I don't want to get into that so much as what's the issue here? Because clearly we may disagree on some of the points, but I agree with you that this uh, catering to pleasure is a problem. So what do we do about it? So the goal is to get your serotonin up and your dopamine down, okay? There's plenty of reasons why your dopamine goes up. You don't need any more of those. What we need are ways to get your serotonin up. And in my book, I describe four ways that any single person on the planet can up their serotonin. And 
more importantly, they are all free. And they're things your mother told you. The first one, connect. So what is connection? It is eye to eye, face to face, reading your expression connection. Now, why does that, why is that important? The answer is because you have a set of neurons in the back of your head, in your occipital lobe, you can record from them. They're called mirror neurons. And what they're doing is they're reading the expressions of the person you're talking to on the fly in real time. And then they are turning that emotion into your own emotion. You end up adopting the emotions of the person you're talking to. And we have a process for that. I mean, we have a name for this. It's called empathy. Empathy is something that all humankind does. Paul Ekman, the uh, famous UC uh, Berkeley psychologist, went to Papua New Guinea. They'd never seen a white person, but they had the exact same facial expressions for every emotion that we have. So a smile meant the same thing, a frown meant the same thing, a furrowed brow meant the same thing. These are all baked into our DNA, and they are communicating our emotions to people even without words. And you are reading those, but you can't read them if you can't see the person. So connection means conversation. Number two, contribute. Contribute means outside of yourself, to the greater good, if you will. Um, obviously, everybody wants their work to be you know, counted as contribution, and it can, provided two provisos are met. First is, you can see how your work helps others, and number two, your boss can see it too. If both of those are the case, you can get contribution through work. That's how I get my contribution. But what if you don't? What if you can't get it that way? Then there are other methods. There's volunteerism, altruism, philanthropy. You can pay someone else to do it for you. But ultimately, you have to do something that benefits outside of yourself. Making money is not contribution. Spending money is not contribution. Giving money is contribution. And again, we have the data on this, and you can actually see people's charity change by altering the serotonin in their brains. Number three, cope. And by cope, I mean three things, sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. So 35% of America currently get less than seven hours of sleep per night, and 23% are chronic insomniacs. And what that does is it ups the dopamine, it ups the need for the stimulation, but it actually downs the serotonin and makes you miserable. It also causes food intake, which also ups the dopamine and downs the serotonin, as we'll talk about in a moment. Mindfulness. The most dangerous word in the English language is multitasking, because no one can do it. Only 2.5% of the population can actually do two things at once. Everyone else is serially unitasking. And when they switch from one task to another, they get a cortisol rise, a stress hormone, which actually depletes serotonin, ups dopamine gain, lowers dopamine receptors, and actually makes you miserable. And then finally, exercise. Turns out exercise is as potent as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, at alleviating depression. And if you 
pit mindfulness and exercise together, you can actually reverse depression without medicine. And then number four, the fourth C, cook. There are three items in food that matter for this, these two pathways. First is tryptophan. Tryptophan is the rarest amino acid. It's found in eggs, chicken, and fish, not exactly processed food. Number two, omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory and improve serotonin neurotransmission. You find those in wild fish, not farmed fish, again, not processed food, and flax and uh, some other um, greeneries. And then finally, sugar, which depletes serotonin and ups your dopamine. So what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low sugar diet. That's called real food. Problem is a low tryptophan, low omega-3, high sugar diet is called processed food. Processed food makes you miserable and processed food is addictive. But how much is enough? I mean, you could, you could listen to you and think, well, the, what this guy's saying is stop having so much fun. Well, I don't, I like fun. Oh, I like fun too. So okay. how much fun is enough fun? Okay. So how much fun is enough fun? Okay. So let me ask you a question. Is cocaine enough fun? Not for me. Well, you know what? The more cocaine you use, the less fun you have. Right. Okay, that's but that's an extreme example. But 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 a hamburger is a, ha a hamburger is not going to ruin my life. No, of course not. Uh, the question is, are you eating a hamburger a week or a hamburger a day? Okay. And the other problem is that since sugar is in seventy four percent of the food in the grocery store, how much sugar should you have? <laughs> that's what I, that's kind of what I'm asking you. Well, so you're supposed to consume less than six teaspoons of added sugar per day. 25 grams. Our current dose is 94 grams median. So we are consuming almost four times as much as is appropriate and safe. And the question is, what effects does that have? Well, number one, type two diabetes, number two, heart disease, number three, fatty liver disease, number four, stroke, number five, hypertension, number six, polycystic ovarian disease, number seven, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, number eight, cancer, number nine, dementia, and decreased economic productivity because all of those people with all those diseases aren't at work. That's a good message. And I really like what you said about uh, pleasure and happiness, because I think, as you point out, people confuse the two and th the road to get to those things are very, very different. And the yeah. result is also very, very different. And exactly. confusing them is probably not such a good idea. So I appreciate the time and I appreciate your message. Dr. Robert Lustig has been my guest. He is a neuroendocrinologist from UC San Francisco. He's author of the book, the Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Our Brains. And there is a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Dr. Lustig. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. You bet. You know, as a business owner myself, I am well aware of the fact that there is nothing more important to the success of any business than to make sure you hire the right person for the right job. But where do you find them? How do you make sure you find the right person? You could try posting on job boards, but can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Instead, find the person who will really help your business grow 
with LinkedIn. When you hear that, doesn't that just make sense? I mean, that's where the smart people in your industry go, LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. And this you'll find interesting, most LinkedIn members have not recently visited the top job boards, yet 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. Think about that. You can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Hurry to linkedin.com something and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com something to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com something. Terms and conditions apply. If you were to count the number of books and podcasts and gurus who talk about success and what you need to do to be successful, the number would be in the thousands. And of course, they mostly all emphasize the positive, the keys to succeed, the seven steps to success. But what you don't hear a lot about is failure. And I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue, that failure is a big part of success an important, even critical part of success that no one talks about very much. Well, almost no one. Chris Gethart does. Chris is a stand-up comedian and, by all outward accounts, a pretty successful one. He's had a one-man show on HBO. He's had his own sitcom on Comedy Central. He's the host of a podcast called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. And he's the author of a new book called Lose Well that's all about failure. Hey, Chris, welcome. So why a successful guy like you, why would you want to talk about and write about failure? Well, I just, uh, I have a lot of experience with losing is the honest answer. Um, I've done a few things that I think people would point to as success and, and I'm very proud of that, but that's all been built on a foundation of just banging my head against the wall. So in the course of doing that process, I came to realize that my idea of success shifted a lot and and it's not as black and white a thing as i think we present to people when they're young and there's this whole idea that you either win or you lose and i just don't buy it i think there's shades of gray and i think those shades of gray are where you learn about yourself and where you come to figure out sort of who you really are and what you really want and i just think that's a little bit of a more realistic healthy way to approach these types of things I couldn't agree more because, like you, I mean, my life, as I look back on it, has had plenty of successes, but there are some humongous failures along the way. And I think that in our culture, and particularly in the media, all these successful people you look at, they never talk about their failures. So the assumption is they didn't have any, and that I suffer in comparison because I have many. And so it's nice to hear somebody come along and say, you know what, uh, failure is fine. It's, well, it may not be fine, but, but it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the equation. I think it's, it's one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle that we don't talk about. I also think failure, when I look back on it, failure is sort of where most of the fun was. Like success brings its own pressures with it. And I wish I had slowed down and kind of enjoyed the early parts of the process where I was allowed to just strike out and fall on my face. I look back and realize it was so fun. And I didn't even know it back then because I felt like I had to be so stressed. 
Yeah. Do you think it was fun in the moment or it's fun to look back because you know you survived? And so it's kind of funny to look back and say, well, look what I look at the screw ups I, I, I had, but but it all turned out OK. I mean, I, I'm sure there's there's some element of rose colored glasses for sure where the, the pressure's off now. But the specific memories I have are, you know, I, I'm a comedian by trade. And I remember so fondly these nights where I'd I'd have gone out and done shows and I'd meet up with other friends who were doing the same thing and we'd wind up in the back booth of some bar wondering like why isn't it happening for us and uh, how wh- what's going on other people are getting things that we want and I look back and realize man that idea that I could stay out all night and end up in a bar and be an artist it was like the golden age it was the golden age and the pressures there were were real at that time but I do hope that one of the things people take away from my book is this idea of take a deep breath and enjoy it, even when the pressure's on, because you don't want to, you don't want to be able, be unable to appreciate this stretch of life. It's a beautiful thing to get to fail. Because don't you think that the success is truly sweeter because of those failures? That if you didn't. If you didn't take the punches along the way, winning the fight isn't as good. Yeah, 100%. You got to earn it. You got to earn it. And it makes it a little more foolproof, too. Not only does it make it that much sweeter, it's also something you're more equipped to handle because you've been through the ringer a few times. That failure toughens you up, gets you ready so that when the success comes, you don't freak out and you don't botch it. I've seen that happen too. So when failure happens, when failure happened to you along the way, what is it looking back that you did to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and move on? I think failure is always a learning opportunity. And I think one of the, one of the things that I really learned that I write about in my book is kind of the real turning point for me was I failed in some big ways. And instead of letting that cripple me, I I took a step back and sort of reevaluated my values. And I was able to really ask myself, how much of these pursuits I'm going on are things that I really want? How much of them are ego-driven? How much is it I want something like this to happen for me because I've seen it happen for someone else and I'm jealous or I want to be compared to them in a positive way? I think when you go for something, and it doesn't happen, it always represents a reset point where you can either keep moving forward on that or you can go, wait, is this something I really want? Is this who I really am? Does this reflect my actual values? And it gives you a chance to sort of redefine and reshape your goals along the way. That's a big thing that I believe in is I think we have this sort of like manifest destiny, you know, American dream thing of I'm going to declare this one thing I want and I'm going to go get it by hook or by crook. And I think it's more realistic to go, I'm going to go not get it because it's not likely that you'll succeed. And when I strike out, maybe I'll see a clearer path to the thing that makes more sense for me. And when you did that uh, along the course of your life and, and when you failed, do you think that more often than not, you said, wait a minute, this isn't what I want or no, this is what I want. I just need to suck it up and move on. I've had a lot of the latter one. In 2010, I'd been a comedian for 10 years already. And a lot of the people who came up in the same scene as me were getting some big jobs. 
And I was very, very stressed out that one had not come my way after 10 years. And then I got a sitcom job and it bombed. It bombed hard. I was the lead of a sitcom and it did not go well. And that was not easy. But that was the big moment in my life, um, career-wise, where, where I was able to step back and go, wait, why am I embarrassed about this? I don't like sitcoms. I don't watch them. There's other people who do. I'm not rolling my eyes at them. I don't judge them. There's millions and millions of people like them, but they're not for me. So why did I really want this? This wasn't something that reflects who I am as an artist or even as a person. This is pure ego. And I have to get that ego out of the way. You know, if that if that job had succeeded, I'm sure I would have done it for a very long time and I would have made a lot of money and I, w- I would have been happy in, in some sense. But when it struck out, I was able to go, whoa, okay. In one sense, that was a really big embarrassment. In another sense, maybe I dodged a bullet a little bit. Maybe I can step back and go, why did I spend 10 years fighting for something that wasn't going to be all that fulfilling anyway? Maybe the next phase of my life has to be about doing stuff that reflects my integrity a little bit more. Well, and and I think one of the reasons that probably happened was that... I know a little bit about it, that in the comedy business, if, if you're a successful comedian, a sitcom is like a next big step up. And, and it, it's almost as if you have to take, you, you can't say no to this. Right, right. I mean, that's the other thing that's such a, such a trip to think about is if you were to say to me today, hey, we can give you a time machine so you can go back to that point in your life and not take that job. I would have said, no, I need to take that job. Of course, I'm going to still take that job, knowing exactly how poorly it's about to go, because you're not going to not do that. And I wouldn't trade anything that I learned from that mistake for the world. You know, not even mistake, misstep. I wouldn't trade any of it. So I would so much rather regret things I've done than things I have not done. And so having failed in between your successes and having gone through those dark times, what are some of the things that people can take from what you've learned and apply to their own life? One that was a real big one for me was, you know, I grew up in, a, I, I was this kid who had these artistic inclinations. No one in my family was an artist. Nobody in my neighborhood was an artist. I came from a pretty working class section of Northern New Jersey. It wasn't a thing. So this whole idea of, well, if no one you know has ever done the thing you want to do, we convince ourselves, well, that's not a thing that people like me are supposed to do, to which I would say, no, absolutely not. Like When it comes to especially creative fields, you need the voices that haven't been heard before. You need to dive in and be the one who sets the bar. You can't sit there and go, I guess I'm just supposed to stay in my lane. I think that's actually something that's really oppressive, and it's something that gets manipulated a lot. I will meet people who are 22, 23 years old who approach me and go, you know, I always wanted to do comedy, but I feel like I'm too old now. That ship has sailed. And I'm like, you're 22. And then you get 28-year-olds who are going, yeah, I'm the one who needs to quit. And then you get 35-year-olds going, you're 28. What are you talking? And that goes all the way up the chain where I do think it's a little bit of a created barrier. There's another one that comes up all the time that I hear from people who say, you know, "I I really want to go for something, but I haven't hit rock bottom yet. And that's this running thing that I hear over and over again where people have, where I'm going, where I go, what are you talking about? And they go, you know, I, I, I don't love my cubicle job, but I haven't been fired yet. And I kind of hate it, but I'll just wait until it really hits a disaster point. And, and then I'm going to go try to be a musician. And it's like, 
well, why do you have to wait till things are at a crisis? That's this imaginary hero's journey that we make up in our own minds. Maybe it's a little smarter to start laying the groundwork for it now while those things are still in place. And maybe it'll help alleviate some of the stress you feel. And it doesn't have to be born out of some like big disaster. Yeah. And so much of it is, is self-imposed, self-inflicted, you know, I'm too old. Well, says who, you know, what, what do you, too old for what? You know, get, how do you know unless you try? By what standard, you know? And because I get to travel so much as a comedian. And I will, I will tell you, everywhere I go, I meet people who you can tell they feel like they feel doubted. They feel like they're not being listened to. And it's, it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. And I, I think there's something to be said for society probably does function better if everybody just stays in their lane. You know, it's like if, if your father did blank, maybe you should do blank. Like if you're, if your boss is rolling his eyes at you, it's just cause he wants you to stay focused in on the things he needs out of you. Like, I, I think there's something to be said for it feels really weird to intentionally plunge into something that makes you an outlier or makes you outside the norm. Um, but I kind of feel that 100% of the time, those chances are worth taking versus sitting around feeling like you're kind of just this weirdo in your own head with these ambitions that you're never going to act on. That seems very, very toxic and insidious to me. Because even if you fail, at least you'll know. 100%. My, uh, around 2007, I was, I was really having a lot of, of panic about my career and it, it, it got to a degree where uh, I wound up heading back into therapy, which is something that I totally need in my life and I still do to this day. And, and she actually gave me this great advice where she was like, you know, go out and give yourself no other option. And I asked her what she meant. She was like, stop taking money for freelance jobs. Stop scrapping it together with all this other stuff. Go make money purely through comedy, through acting, through writing, through performing comedy. And I said, it's a horrible idea. I pay my rent through all these other ways. And she said, great, well, go get it over with. If you, if you can go make it happen, you'll find a way to pay your rent. And if you can't, you'll know you don't have what it takes and you can stop stressing out about this. And it was so scary. It's so scary to think about if I have this unfulfilled goal and I actually go do it and it doesn't work, then it's over. It's like, yeah, it is. But then you get out of this purgatory that creates so much self-doubt and so much stress. And then you'll know you won't spend the rest of your life wondering what if, and then you can you know, plot your course from that point. I mean, I think that was some great advice you got. Lastly, is there something we haven't talked about yet? Just something from your experience and your examination of your failures, uh, one piece of advice that you think is really important. One of the things that I'm a very big proponent of is making sure you use those opportunities to also find a community. If you can have a community of like-minded people, um, you can always lean back into them. and You can create a support system. Basically, one of the things I say is if, if you're trying to do something unusual, it's easy to feel like very, very solitary, very lonely in that pursuit. But there's other people, you know, for me, there's other comedians. I live in New York City. There's a lot of artists. I'm lucky, but it's not just comedians. It's, uh, it's filmmakers. It's musicians. It's, it's a lot of people who are trying to do their own thing in this world. So one of the things I like to say is that 
when you put something unlikely or unusual out into the world, you send up a signal flare and it attracts the other people of that mindset to you. And even if it fails, they'll start to see it. They'll start to see the effort. And if you keep your eyes peeled and you start looking to support other people in your sphere of influence, whether that's in real life or it's online or whatever it is, if you're looking for the other people who are outliers in the same way you are, start to be able to build a little network. And that becomes a real source of strength. And when you strike out that first time, now you have someone else to lean on. You have somebody else to bounce your ideas off of, someone else to give you advice, someone who can even just help you lick your wounds in, in a basic way. And finding that tribe of people and building that community, I think that's immensely important. Well, I, I think your message about failure is right on target. And, and I really like the way you have used failure to basically guide your journey and not let it derail you. Chris Gethard has been my guest. He is a stand-up comedian. He is host of the podcast Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, and his new book just out called Lose Well. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot. One of the concerns with fresh produce is pesticides and, and bacteria. And you've probably wondered at some point, how much good am I really doing when I rinse these grapes under running water for a little bit? How much pesticide or bacteria really gets washed away? Probably not much, according to researchers at Tennessee State University. They say you need to rinse produce for 30 to 60 seconds, which to most of us seems like a ridiculously long time. But that is what it takes. Also, while you're rinsing, it's a good idea to use your hands. Also, while you're rinsing the produce, it's a good idea to use your hands to scrub. That helps get rid of more bacteria. Also, even things like pineapple and melon should be washed because when you cut into these foods with a knife, bacteria on the outside gets transferred to the inside by the knife. It's also recommended that you store produce in the bag it came in from the supermarket. If you store it loose in the vegetable bin in the refrigerator, the bacteria gets transferred to the surface of the vegetable bin, which, by the way, is the germiest part of your refrigerator. And that is something you should know. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn. You can check us out there. We publish additional content on social media that is not in the show. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.